Welcome to episode number 19 of the Make It Stack podcast. I am your host, Will Waterhouse. So today we're sitting down with Lewis Harding, aka Lewis Harding Invest on Instagram. And uh, we talk about a variety of different things, including how he got into the world of investing, his target investment portfolio, which includes commodities and venture capital. And we also touch upon lifetime ISIS and de-risking. And finally, touch upon his value approach for listed equities. Unfortunately, the podcast had to be cut short uh, due to Zoom changing their uh, terms of usage on the on the free on the free one. It used to be uh, unlimited, and now now it was forty minutes. So I learned that the hard way. Uh, but I hope you enjoy the podcast. So without further ado, let's get into it. Apologies for the um, I IKEA flat pack. I've recently moved house. Um, <laughs> I just need to get around to putting it up. <laughs> oh, nice. Um, yeah, from your accent, it sounds like you're from Yorkshire. Is that right? That is correct. Yeah, so I'm up north at Yorkshire. So, yeah. Oh, lovely. Um, yeah, I um, I may not sound like it, but uh, I'm I was born and raised in Yorkshire as well. But um, oh wow, I, uh, I I went to Bristol Uni. Uh, back in 2014 and then and then subsequently moved to London so uh, unfortunately I've, I've lost the accent a little bit but I, I am a Yorkshire person uh, at heart <laughs> for sure. <laughs> <laughs> love that, love that. <laughs> um, but yeah Lewis um, like thanks so much for uh, taking the time to come on the podcast. Um, it's been a while since I've done one and I know like you've had quite a hectic um, summer and things so it's just been good to finally finally get some time in the diary um but yeah just just from my perspective um i'm very passionate about investing and i'm also very interested in hearing other people's stories and that's yeah, why yeah. i really did start the podcast really just to kind of understand uh, other people's views on on all things finance um so i was i was hoping for you to just start off by just like talking a little bit about yourself and like how you how you came across the world world of investing um that'll be that'll be really insightful yeah sure thing um so yeah what's my story so i'm 24 so um yeah, 25 years old i'm from yorkshire um lived between it's about 20 miles below york and it's about 30 odd miles from leeds so it's kind of smack bang in the middle of east yorkshire um so you have to go in a car to get anywhere that's kind of where <laughs> i am basically um but yeah so I mean, I live in my own, in my own house now, recently moved. Um, but what's my story about starting? So I'm 24 now. I started investing when I was 19. Well, I say investing, I'll get onto that. Um, but I first found the world of investing. I was always, I've always, always been a numbers person. So I'm an accountant by trade. Um, I didn't go to university straight from A-levels. I went straight into an accountancy apprenticeship. Um, so even from being a young kid, I've always been maths or science. It was always numbers, numbers, numbers. I've never like a... I wasn't very good at like English or history, let's say, where, where you had to do essays. I was always better at the numbers exams. Yeah. So I always had an indication that it was going to be something like that I was going to be interested in. Anyway, so in, in my county job, and I'm 19 years old, you know, I have a little bit of savings, not much, but I was listening to another podcast, which is like a football-related podcast, but they had someone on who was into investing. Um, 
like a multi-millionaire, et cetera, et cetera. And it piqued me interest. I thought, all right, on the stock market, let's make some money. So this guy was saying in 20, this was 2017, back when I was 19, <laughs> um, cannabis stocks are going to be the next big thing. I was like, all right. <laughs> You 19-year-old Lewis is like, oh, God, let's put some money into some cannabis stocks. Um, you know, just total speculation, no thought process. Um, but I happened to put money into these stocks when um, Canada um, and California was legalizing weed. So on the 1st of January 2018, California, you know, all the laws went through from that date. And the, the couple of months before that, all the Canadian cannabis companies just went up in this big bubble mm. and I rode that bubble <laughs> I made some money yeah. um so that's you know it's a fun story because I sold my shares and I bought my second car which is bonkers but I knew from that well I knew it wasn't my, my genius I was not genius that was just me getting lucky mm. it's effectively gambling what I did but once I bought a car I had no money in the stock market at all then I knew I had to start learning about it properly so this is how I got down the rabbit hole of personal finance, investing. That all kind of started from there. So I got a bit lucky with something, but I also knew it wasn't me being like a genius. It was just luck. It was basically like winning the lottery in a weird way. If I, I was scratch card, yeah. if that makes sense. That's the way I thought of it. So, but, but then, yeah, I started looking at um, Warren Buffett, Charlie Munger, all the famous value investors. I learned most, well, I get most of the knowledge from podcasts and YouTube, and it's all kind of come from there then onto books and then yeah. other, other creators. Um, so, so yeah, that's, uh, that's kind of. So, so, so basically you were listening to a football podcast and he was shamelessly plugging cannabis stocks and then you correct. just kind of, yeah, yeah, <laughs> that's yeah. That, True Jordy podcast me. is a, it's quite a decent sized YouTuber in the UK. Um, and a guy called Sean Atwood, who he actually has his own YouTube channel now because he was in prison he was in prison. Um, yeah, it's a long story, but um, that's yeah, that's kind of how I got into it. <laughs> wow. Yeah, I, to be fair, I remember the, the the cannabis boom in was it twenty seventeen or twenty eighteen, and um, there were stocks like Sativa and uh, Canopy Growth, and uh, Canopy I growth, yeah. I know I've mentioned yeah. this a couple of times on the on the podcast before, but I used to work for Hargreaves Lansdowne, which was like oh, it's wow, like okay. a large. Um, a large UK investment platform. That's what I used for them. That's what I used for shares. <laughs> oh, really? Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. Great. Yeah. Well, I, so I used, to, I used to work for Hargreaves Lansdowne and I worked on the help desk. So um, you'd get all these calls from clients and prospective clients or just like punters uh, that had like read something and they're like, oh, do you, uh, can I buy shares in Canopy Growth and all this stuff? Um, but yeah, I, I remember um, there was there was one guy he he came into Bed and Isa like several thousands pounds worth of uh, Sativa shares, uh, and um, and that was back in 2018 when it was doing really well. But I, I I can't remember the numbers, but it's since declined so much. So I'm not sure if he's still holding, but uh, but yeah, definitely a lot of volatility. Hundred percent, it's crazy, and it's just a weird coincidence because it was a, a football from a football YouTuber doing a podcast who had a guy on who was a stock market Wall Street whiz who then went to prison because he was into some dodgy stuff. And then he was telling his story and he was like, oh, what's the next thing I'm looking at? Oh, it's cannabis shares. So it's a really weird like domino effect as how I've gotten to doing all, all of this. But I guess that's how life works, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, uh, that's cool. Um, I, was, uh, I was looking at your, your website uh, before uh, the podcast today 
And um, what was quite cool was, was your uh, target investment portfolio allocation, which I thought was very interesting. So I've got it up now. So um, half of it's in global stocks, brackets, value investing. But I noticed there was a small, um, small allocation to uranium and commodities. Um, do you want to just like talk me through your target asset, asset allocation? Because yeah, it's, it's really cool that you're, you're targeting something so specific. Yeah, sure thing. I've got it up. I've just got it up here as well because I wondered if you might ask about what processes and stuff. Yeah. Um, but yeah, commodities and uranium in particular. Um, so let me think, what's that? About 8% to, yeah, 8% commodities. So gold, commodities, uranium. So I'm a big believer in, I mean, I'd rather own these things than a little bit of cash. And another thing is, I mean, I'm a big fan of someone like someone called Ray Dalio. He's quite a, you know, he runs the biggest hedge fund in the world, Bridgewater Associates. And he's always said owning commodities and gold is always, he's got a very different portfolio to me, but I've always liked the fact of owning some commodities and gold, especially after COVID, all this inflation has now come in. You know, I've seen the benefit in my portfolio by owning them. Um, and what's good about commodities and gold, it's usually very uncolorated to, equities so that's another reason why i wanted to own them um uranium is a very interesting one because there's a lot of good fundamentals behind behind uranium so you know at the minute energy is currently sky high because of the ukraine crisis and that's caught that's one of the being one of the main factors causing this inflation um or likely likely cause anyway um but yeah, there's some interesting fundamentals behind uranium. So after the pandemic, the biggest supplier of uranium, a company called Kazatomprom, it's a Kazakh, Kazakh company, they produce like 40% of, maybe 40, 50% of the world's uranium, just one company. They basically shut up shop. So all these uranium mines, the production was a lot lower. But then coming out of COVID, the supply for uranium has been a lot more, a lot bigger. And now there's a lot of thought that Uranium and nuclear has been frowned upon by a lot of countries because of Fukushima, obviously Chernobyl in the 80s. Yeah. Um, but uranium can produce so much energy from so little resource that it's probably going to be the no-brainer in terms of fulfilling the world's energy needs into the future because the world just needs more and more energy. Um, and my thesis yeah. behind holding a little bit of uranium is that the supply and demand behind it is just so in your favour for a thesis that it just makes it just yeah. makes sense from my point of view. I've read up a lot of studies and and stuff as well. So I think it's worth a little sliver in the portfolio. Yeah, fair. Even though uranium don't pay dividends. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's an interesting one. So my gold commodities and uranium, none of them pay dividends. So it's a bit it's a bit of an odd one because I do usually like companies which have cash flow. Um, so yeah, it's a little bit of a strange one. Yeah. But I think for now, having that like 10% in them commodities, yeah. I'm, I'm happy with that. I'm happy with that, you see. Yeah. I mean, um, so you mentioned Ray, Ray Dalio um, and, and Bridgewater. It's, um, it's really interesting because a lot of these sort of hedge funds have, they had a pretty tough like time post-COVID. Because like a lot, a, lot um, a lot of them had like very high exposure to value, which, which kind of suffered quite a bit like off the back of COVID. But what's been really interesting to see is for people that have had the conviction to hold these diversified portfolios where they have things like commodities and stuff in, 
ultimately it will come good. You know, some, some factors are doing well. Some factors may do well off the back of COVID, for example, like quality and growth. But at some point there'll be a reversal and you'll see commodities uh, like just pop off, which is what we've seen year to date. And um, I'm not sure if you heard of AQR, but they, um, that's another type of hedge fund. And um, some of their portfolios are doing so well just because they have really good exposure to, to commodities. Um, but I myself don't, don't invest in commodities just yet. I feel like I haven't done enough, enough due diligence. I don't know enough about it. Um, but that, that, that sounds really interesting. Yeah, no, it's interesting you say that. I think that's another reason I have a very, you know, a very small portion to commodities is because I don't feel like, you know, I think I don't know if in the all weather portfolio, Ray Dalio's, is it seven point five percent in commodities and seven point? I don't know. It's quite a large, quite quite a large portion though commodities. So, um, yeah, I don't know if I'm that comfortable yet, mm. but I'm happy to own a very small amount. But like you said, the hedge funds which have owned them, they've done well. Um, over the past yeah. year or so. Yeah, because I mean, if you look at what all the major asset, all the major um, like equity and bond markets have done this year, they've, they've all done pretty bad, like generally speaking. Uh, but the only the only thing that's really held up really well, I guess, what once you could argue is real estate, which has held up fairly well. But yeah, commodities have done so well. So it, it just really goes to show how important it is to have a diversified portfolio. And I think I think a lot of people, myself included, probably probably thought they were really clever owning all these growth stocks um, throughout 2020 and 2021 and loads of people are just getting burned so bad. So yeah, it's tough. Um, <laughs> yeah. yeah. And um, so I, I just going through the, the asset allocation as well. So you mentioned that you've got um, a 10% allocation to venture capital. Um, it would be great if you could just, provide a bit of an overview as to what venture capital is just for the listeners and then talk about what, like why that's, why that's in your portfolio as well. Yeah. So it's another interesting allocation because, you know, I'm known as a value investor. So most of the money is in, you know, hence the Warren Buffett um, kind of selling investing, but I do have a very small um, sliver in venture capital. So venture capital is essentially invested in startups slash growth companies and how do I do this? I do this via crowd equity crowdfunding platforms. So the two I use are Cedars and Crowdcube. So they're the two biggest ones in the UK. Um, the US has multiple ones as well. I don't use any US ones. I'm not really comfortable using theirs because I feel like UK ones can have a bit of a better grasp on things. Um, but in terms of what companies I invest in, most of my venture capital companies are like in the fintech space. So I've got shares in Free Trade, the investing app. I use them for all my you know, broken needs. Um, there's a few other companies I own as well through these equity crowdfunding platforms. I've done this since about, since about 2019, 2020. Um, and another thing with it is because the private companies, it's completely separate from the stock market, if that makes sense. So it's uncorrelated in a, in a, in a so it's uncorrelated, but at the same time, it doesn't come about risk. So with so these equity crowdfunding, investing in private companies there's a risk that your money just you just will you won't see a return because the company fails yeah yeah mm. shares are worthless so that's sim- simple as that but also not very liquid so a lot of it, you might not see your return on your money for five six seven years so you have to be happy to have your money held up for that long so yeah that, that's some of the downsides but from there some of the upside some of the upsides can be quite um, lucrative 
Um, so like free trade, for example, I first invested when the valuation was up 40 million pounds. Well, I think the latest valuation is, can't remember what it was, was it 600 million? So that's gone by quite a bit. Obviously, shed dilution. Yeah. But then the other risk is at the minute, if we're looking like there's going to be economic downturn. The valuation of these startups are going to be a lot less now. So that's the risk versus reward comes in. So I've essentially got 10% investing in startups slash growth companies. That's an allocation I'm comfortable with. I can sleep at night, basically. I wouldn't want half my portfolio in startups because that's, I wouldn't be able to sleep at night, simple as that. But I'm happy to have that. That allocation pretty much sums up my in my head the reward versus risk. And I think it's worth worth it in my view. Yeah. And what, what's the sort of uh, investment time horizon for holding these venture capital holdings? Was it like five to six years or something? Yeah, five to six years is common. Um, it's very rare that it's one or two. Um, so there's a platform called Nutmeg. You've probably heard of Nutmeg. Yeah, I've heard of Nutmeg. They were acquired by JP Morgan a few years ago. And I think the investors in a one year or two year period, I think they just doubled the money. So obviously timing and all that helps. But don't expect to see a return if you see a return within five years plus because it's just unrealistic. Um, I mean, to be fair, Free Trade, when they did their last crowdfunding round, they gave investors the option to, to sell their shares. So there's more liquidity events coming up for these companies, but don't bank on that. Let's just say that because a lot of them, well, the only way you're going to get an exit is through an IPO, so stock market listing, or the company gets acquired um, by a bigger company. Um, like JP Morgan buying Nutmeg, for example. Okay, so in that case, you just receive shares in in JP Morgan rather than Nutmeg in that in that in that situation. Yeah, you might receive shares in JP Morgan, or alternatively, because the companies are the biggest, they can just often pay cash for your shares, and right. the provider will just facilitate the the share sale, and you just get your money into your bank account. Simple as that, and that's how you get your return. That's often the most common way because it isn't there's not too many that get to the IPO stage because a lot of bigger, bigger companies just want to acquire and swallow, swallow them up. But often for us, that's a good thing because it means we get to see our return then materialize, crystallize. That's the point of it. Try to make some money from it, you see. Yeah, buy low, sell high, exactly. Yeah, and um, so you mentioned share dilution. Um, like given that you're a value investor, do you, do you not think that share dilution is, is potentially a red flag to have uh, in, in this part of, in this part of the portfolio because because obviously like when you're dealing with private companies there's going to be so much stuff going on under the surface that isn't publicly disclosed so do you what are your thoughts on share dilution and, and what are your thoughts on this kind of wider transparency issues for for, for investing in in these products yes yeah, so i'll i'll go through share dilution first so in terms of my listed stocks that's a very very big factor if a company is issuing a lot of shares I'm not a big fan of that if it's listed, for example. But the venture capital side is quite a common, it's quite a common thing. The only way they can raise cash is by, you know, giving away more equity. So it's another reason why I don't want a lot of money in it, if that makes sense, because of that risk of, you know, your return might be good, but it could have been better if it wasn't diluted so much. So I kind of just accept that, take it on the chin with that side of my investing, the 10% of it. But the rest, the rest of it via my global stocks, Chinese stocks, for example, if they were issuing a lot of shares, I just wouldn't own the company in the first place because it just destroys value as a shareholder. Um, but then the second one, the transparency side, I think that's a very big factor. And I personally think in the next couple of years, depending on what happens with the economic situation, 
there's going to be a, probably a lot of reviews into what companies these platforms were ad, not advertising, but what sort of companies were advertising the platform, and if enough due due diligence was done by the platforms for these certain companies, because in theory, if company A just wants to list on Crowdcube and they get through the process, they could have any old idea and anyone could invest. So I'm sure they have quite a rigorous process, but I've seen a few companies I thought, don't know, don't know about that one. <laughs> it's like, it's like yeah. obviously it just won't work just from a common sense point of view. I don't want to sound big headed, but you know what I mean? Yeah. If you, if you can look at a common sense, like, will this work? Will it not? Is this just, if a Crowdcube, or Cedars list this company, they're going to get fees from the company, so they have an incentive to list as many as possible. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, no, I, I think as an investor, it's really important to listen to your gut. And, and like, chances are, if, if you don't feel like something's right, odds are it's not. Uh, I, th- I, think that's, I think that's really important. Um, yeah, uh, what was I going to say? Oh, yeah, um, so from my understanding in, in sort of venture capital in, investing, it kind of either goes to zero or it smashes it. Like, so it's Literally. kind of like quite a sort yeah. of, um, quite a binary outcome in that you either do really well, or really bad. Like, do you do you have any idea what the kind of risk reward profile looks like for for the holdings that you have? Yeah, so it's interesting. So the way I go about it is I only invest in certain business models, and so I think there's two companies which are outside of my business models, and I actually regret investing in them. So that's you know I've learned from my mistakes. My first ever crowdfunding one was Brewdog. So Brewdog, oh. famous, famously, so in 2019, I invested in Brewdog, a couple of hundred quid. I was like, all right, yeah, let's do it. Let's give them a beer discount. Great. <laughs> <laughs> so I went and did it. I was like, all right, fantastic. But what is it, two, three years later, my shares are just worth the same, probably worth less, to be honest. Yeah. I don't really expect to see any return from that. I think Brewdog will list. I don't expect it to be anywhere near the £2 billion valuation I bought my shares at. So, yeah. so yeah, that's something on the chin. But basically what I've done is anything in my portfolio is all related to finance or software businesses, which can generally get acquired easily or they can get profitable a lot quicker. So a, so free trade, for example, the investing app, I personally think they're going to be around for a while, whether it get acquired by a big UK bank, whatever happens to them, I think they're going to be around and we'll see a return. Fantastic. I've also invested in a company called Bank North. So it's like a, a new bank in the UK and mainly for businesses, taking out loans, et cetera. So financy style companies, I've got an accountancy software company called Coconut. Um, they, it's like an accountancy app for sole traders because that market's quite underdeveloped for sole traders. Lots and of, that's within your circle of competence as well. Yeah, 100%. Yeah, so... The crowdfunding companies I'm looking into are all finance, finance related in some fashion. And I always find them businesses are going to succeed a lot better than, say, a drinks company, a clothes company, or something bonkers, which I was like, there's just some weird things you see on these platforms. You just got to use your common sense, use your gut, and go with it. But like I said, oh, Moneybox is another one. I invest into Moneybox as well. Yeah. So they're quite a big platform in the UK. They're doing quite well. Um, so it's them style of companies I'm looking into. Anything outside of that nowadays, I just just ignore. I don't even look. So yeah, um, yeah. Just just uh, yeah. Just on the whole kind of investment platform industry outlook, I I, I feel as though um, we are seeing a shift in that there are these sort of like 
older, more archaic kind of investment platforms. I mean, I wouldn't say archaic, but like kind of a lot of boomers are with, are with these platforms like AJ Bell, Hargreaves, Lansdowne, and then just like maybe like old, older sort of banks and, and wealth managers, uh, St. James's Place as well. But I feel like the, there's a younger crowd, like the, the millennials and the, and the Gen Z guys, they're going towards these like free trade apps, like trading 212. And I don't think that the, the more traditional investment platforms are getting market share. Can you, can you, can you see like a migration towards uh, these, these different platforms that are a bit more innovative? Like what, what, do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, so I think it's more of a generational thing. So I believe the younger audience is probably going to be more into your free trades, your trading two on twos, them kind of platforms where it's all accessible via your mobile phone. So basically anyone under 30 to start with, all right, maybe under 35, but then above 35, there's going to be objections to, what's it called? Objections to the rule. But then you've got the HLs, the AJ Bells, the UK banks, or, you know, for more wealthy people, you know, certain asset managers, etc. I don't think there'll be a shift from the, the older people going to the new platforms, but I think maybe 10, 20 years time, it'd be interesting to see how much asset under management has shifted. Yeah. So that's, the, that's the key figure. How many assets under management do these platforms have? HL has probably got, I don't know how many, 100 billion maybe? Yeah, I like think that. it's between 100 and 200 billion in, in, in that's AUM. That's a lot. That is a lot, especially yeah. for the UK. I think free trade might be one or two billion. So, you know what I mean? There's still a long way to go to get yeah. to that. But that makes sense because if more younger people are using free trade, well, for what as much assets under management because they're younger, older people have big pensions, they have the ISAs have grown over a long time. So I think it might be a case of HL, AJ Bell will be here for a long time, but I don't expect their businesses to grow. They're just gonna mm. grind it out and keep going with who, who they've got because people don't often change these platforms. It's like people changing banks. I know my parents have stayed the same bank since the 80s, since they've opened a bank account. People don't change investment platforms. Like when you're older, They've got it set up there. They're happy with it. If they're getting a good enough service, they're going to stay there. So, yeah. so yeah. Yeah. And it, and it's quite um, disconcerting because, you know, if you, I'm sure you've done the calcs on this, but like if you, if you compound a portfolio with like 5% return versus 6% return over 30 years, which is to do with how, what you're paying in fees, the, 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 the differences are, are, are quite stark. Uh, but it's it's quite a it's quite an implicit charge that like people don't really notice, and it's it's almost it's almost like that yes a silent killer of of, of investment portfolios. Um, so yes, yeah, it's, it's it's fascinating. Um, so j- just to clarify, so do you hold all of your investments with uh, free trade at the moment? Is that right? Yeah, that's correct. So just having a look, everything apart from my equity crowdfunding is on free trade. So equity crowdfunding is on. Cedars and Crowdcube because you can't hold these type of investment in, in an ISA or pension. And here's another thing. So all my investments in the stock market are all within my SIP or my ISA. Because um, until, you know, I've got a lot, lot, lot more money, I can't afford not to use them products. They're just way too good to not use in terms of the long-term benefits, tax benefits and capital gains, etc. Just a nice little nest egg that you can grow your pot and you've, it's just really beneficial. Um, yeah. So yeah, I use free trade products for them and we've got all 
without our Japanese shares yet, I'm, <laughs> I want some Japanese companies, um, but we're slowly but surely adding to the stock universe. And at the minute, we've got everything uh, near enough need, which is great. Yeah. So, so from my side, um, it's all in tax efficient accounts. So I've got an ISA, a SIP with my current employer, which is with Aviva, and then my old workplace pension when I worked at Hargreaves Lansdowne. Um, and then, yeah, I've got a lifetime ISA, which uh, I, I'm, I'm still so far off in terms of buying a house. I'm not sure if you're aware of like how ridiculous property prices are in London, but it's, oh, um, I do, I know. it's, I know. Uh, it's quite grim. <laughs> but uh, so um, did you utilize the lifetime ISA to buy your house, given that you're on the property ladder now? Yeah, so it's a funny story. So I actually use HL's lifetime ISA. Um, so how did I do it? So remember the correction in 2018 i have mm. loads of little weird stock market stories it's, it's bizarre <laughs> i love it no it's, this is exactly the platform for it <laughs> 2018 um the taper tantrum happened so december 2018 the fed um started i think they started raising interest rates slightly and the market like fell 20 percent or something and um it was like the January of 2019, I decided to buy Lindsay Train Global Equity Fund. Um, like everyone else was. Like everyone else was. <laughs> <laughs> I thought I was really smart. Yeah. Turned out all right though, so I made 20% on that in six months and I got to my deposit figure and just sold everything, held it in cash until I bought my house with my um, former girlfriend, um, which was, then I bought a house in 2020. I had the house for just under a year. Didn't, our relationship didn't work out. Yeah. So we sold the house. I went back to my mum and dad, was there for four or five months. I've been above this place. So that's a very long story. But yeah, I used Lifetime ISA. So I made, made most of the bonus. And then the bonus and my money, I've had invested. But I would not recommend anyone do that. I, I was probably just a bit too cocky. You know, young 20-year-olds always doing that. But it worked out for me. It worked out for me. So yeah. yeah. That's, so this is something that I keep toying over in my head, which is I have a Lifetime ISA and it's um, it's it's hundred percent equities at the moment. So it's, it's fairly high risk. Um, but I, I don't have that much visibility as to like when I'm going to buy a house. So I, yeah, I don't know okay. at which point I'll need to be like, Oh, let's de-risk into, into other stuff. And also to what extent do I need to de-risk when I get to it? Like, should I go into bonds? Should I, should I keep it with equities in there? Should I go into cash? Uh, I think, I think I agree with you in the sense that if you know what your deposit's going to be, and you, you have that money, I, I don't feel like running investment risk is, is a rewarded risk. I, I think I think that's a little yeah. bit rash. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah, do you, ha- do you have any thoughts on, on de-risking as a concept? Because like, it, it's, probably, it's probably one of the most important things you're going to have to do in your life, really, is actually figure out, like, when am I going to pull the plug on this and, and go into low-risk stuff? Yeah, it's interesting. So with the house deposit, like I said, I wouldn't do what I did again. Like now knowing what I know, for example, with the pandemic and stuff, within six weeks, no, it's probably like a, not even a month, the market just tumbled 35% out of nowhere. So it's like, imagine if I had one with the deposit, I don't think I'd be very happy with myself. So, but I got lucky with it, I got to my cash amount, I was very happy. If your time horizon's long enough, then yeah, by all means, get it invested, great. Um. But yeah, so your question just went over my head again. De-risking. So yeah. are you talking about going into bonds, for example? Is that what yeah, you it's, it's, it's just in terms of, like, I guess you've already bought a house, so you kind of, you kind of pass, that, pass that stage. But it, it's like yeah. deciding what time horizon you have 
and what how much risk you should be running i get i know that's a really hard question for you but like if you had any thoughts on that that would be good to hear yeah sure so i mean for me personally i believe anyone in your 20s 30s 40s shouldn't be in bonds at all like if you're if you're going to be investing for the long term but do i see it as equity over time grows your pot bonds are there to consolidate and protect it as a 20 30 year old you definitely don't need to be protecting what you've got you need to be growing that like that's yeah. that's part of my personal view i mean when you get too closer to retirement maybe 10 years before retirement that's when you need to start like right what's the crack going on here what <laughs> you know what i mean because you don't no one could afford 100% equities when you're 65, market crashes in half, your pot's now in half. That just yeah. can't happen when you're that old because it'll just ruin your retirement. So I think yeah. it's an age, an age thing, a time horizon thing. Um, but I definitely know when I get to that age, I'm trying to set my life up in a way so that I can have all my money in equities in a weird way, but I've got other assets on the on the side, which... Haven't you got a buy-to-let property? Yeah, that's correct. Yes, that's another part of my strategy. So yeah. my kind of two-pronged, well, it's going to be, it's, it's currently a two-pronged approach. It's going to be a three-pronged approach. So the main assets I want to be in is the stock market, so in, in equities. I then want buy-to-lets, so real estate. Then the third one is businesses. So, okay, maybe when I get older, I might sell the businesses, but then they give you, you know, a lot more cash, et cetera. Or, you know what I'm saying? So the three-pronged approach is, Businesses, which produce cash flow, real estate, which produces cash flow, and stocks, equities, which you know produces growth. That three-pronged approach, I think, for me, in my opinion, is the best way to approach retirement. Might seem a bit ambitious, but you know, I've got a lot of time on my side and I'm, I'm willing to put the work in in terms of you know, outside my nine to five, put work in from a them three that three-pronged approach kind of thing. Yeah. Um so yeah even if it was just a two-pronged approach of real estate and um, the stock market, if there's a badge in the stock market, it drops 50%, I can rely on my cash flow from a property. So that's the kind of way I'm looking at it um, and, and going from there. So I wouldn't have to own any bond because my personal view of bond is for a lot of rubbish. Um, really? <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'm just, just not a fan. Just not a fan of controversial opinion. But at the minute, what a bond returning? Was it one and a half? It's obviously turns on the duration of the bond and things will be changing now with interest rates going up. But mm. what's the current treasury rate? I, I can't remember. Oh uh, yeah, I, I mean, I is think two and a half percent. If I think long, long term, I think long term government bond yields have, have gone up. I think that some of them are around three percent now. Um, but yeah, I guess, I guess with 10%, bonds, yeah, you get yeah. eroded that you? So I just don't like the risk versus reward, and from a bit of a longer time rising point of view for the big issue in the world of the amount of debt we've got. And I think when that, you know, I'm not a conspiracy theorist at all, but Ray Dalio talks about um, his book, the big debt crisis, about his eight year debt cycles. Um, and if you look at how much debt's in the world in China, Europe, Japan, America, it's not looking good. <laughs> <laughs> so um, I wouldn't want to own bonds when that thing eventually, you know, implodes. So that's another thing. Yeah. yeah, I guess with bonds though is that you can't paint all bonds with the same brush. If you know what I mean, so like there's mm. there's government bonds which are pretty low risk and, and therefore the, the returns you can expect. Triple A bonds like Apple's bonds, for example. Yeah, exactly. But there'll there'll be other other bonds that that run more more credit risk, and you you might be expected to get a, a slightly higher high yield on those. 
Um, but I, I completely agree with you in that for, for younger people, it makes sense to have, have equities uh, as pretty much their entire allocation. Uh, just just kind of max, maximize as much growth as possible. Yeah. Um, yeah. And then, sorry, I, I, I'm conscious we've only got like five minutes. I didn't know that Zoom had, had like introduced this time limit, uh, which is a bit annoying. But um, I was just going to say, so would you be able to just quickly give an overview as to your value investing approach for listed equities? Because I feel like that's something important that um, DIY investors will need to do at some point yeah sure thing so i'm mainly known as a value investor so when i invest in the stock market i'm looking to buy a company for less than less than its intrinsic value so my personal rate of return is 10 percent or above um so essentially what i'm trying to do is when i analyze companies i put my cash flows into an excel the company's free cash flow into an excel and it spits out a share price figure of what i'll be happy to pay based on my estimations um, but I've got like a four-step process to go through um, when analysing a company to see if I think it's good enough or not. So the, the first pillar is if a company is profitable, high returns on capital, using low leverage. So simply, I want a company to be making money. I want them to make money on the money invested in the business and then I want them to have as little debt as possible. I think these three characteristics show qualities of a you know, high-quality business, just, them, just very simply, them three. Um, you can see this on my YouTube channel, for example, I go through all sorts of different companies and I go through step by step. The second one is um, growth. So growth is a very important factor in investing. Um, it determines how much you're willing to pay for the company because you're willing to pay a lot more if the company is growing more, simple as that. So revenue growth, profit growth, free cash flow growth and return earnings growth. Then four things, if they're growing, it's a really good sign. The third thing is capital allocation. So what is a company doing with its cash to benefit the shareholders? So share buybacks, um, reducing debt, and um, buying companies, you know, having made a good acquisition, like say Facebook buying Instagram, very good acquisition, paying dividends, um, all of them things are good things to the business. You want to analyze them, them keenly. And the fourth and final one is buy at a fair price. So you want to buy a company at a fair price um, because ultimately when you buy a company at a certain valuation, it's going to determine your return very likely. So that's the fourth one is the most important one. And that's what value investors are all about buying companies at cheap valuations. Um, but yeah, that's kind of my four step process summarized. Yeah, that's awesome. Um, Lewis, I'm actually so sorry about this time limit thing. We're probably going to cut off in two minutes, but, um, could you just provide, um, your, your links to your, your various stuff and, and just, if someone had a question for you, um, what's the best way to get in touch with you? Yeah, sure, sure thing. So my main platform is YouTube. So Lewis Harding Invest, type it onto Google, um, YouTube, and you'll find me. If you want to send me a DM, just head over to Lewis Harding Invest on Instagram. Um, and yeah, go ahead, send me a message. Uh, alternatively, go to, you can email me at hello at lewishardinginvest.com. Uh, send me an email, I'll respond to you. So yeah, sounds good to me. Awesome. Well, great. Thanks so much for, for your time, Lewis. I know we've been cut short, but um no, we'll so have to do a part two for sure. We'll, we'll have to do a part, part two, two definitely. We've only just scratched the surface here. But yeah, thank thank you so much, Lewis, and, and take care. Cheers, well. Thank you very much. Yes. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Well done on making it to the end of the podcast. I hope you enjoyed it. If you did, please can you leave a comment if possible and leave a five-star review. This will really help the algorithm. 
and also let me know which content really resonates with you. Uh, Thank you very much. Just one final note, uh, remember that the podcast should not be regarded as financial advice. If you are unsure of making any investment decision, please contact your financial advisor.